Good morning. My name is Brandon. I am one of the pastors here at um, Sojourn Heights. As he said, we have been in a series in the book of Lamentations. Lamentations is five uh, distinct but interwoven poems lamenting the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. And this week in chapter four, uh, Lamentations takes a bit of a turn. And so we are going to take a bit of a turn with Lamentations. You ready? Ready. Tim Keller, in the opening of his book, Counterfeit Gods, wrote this. After the global economic crisis began in mid-2008, there followed a tragic string of suicides of formerly wealthy individuals. The chief financial officer of Freddie Mac hanged himself the chief executive of Sheldon Good shot himself in the head behind the wheel of his red Jaguar. A French money manager lost, who lost $1.4 billion of his client's money slit his wrist. And then Keller went on to give two or three more examples. And here's my question. Here's my question. What if someone had warned them? Like what if we could go back in time and someone could sit down with them 20 years before, back we'll call it 1988, sit down with them and look at them and say, if your life becomes about achievement, success, money, you're going to get it. You will get everything you have ever wanted and it's going to kill you. What if someone had warned them? If we'll hear it. If we'll hear it. Lamentations 4 is a warning that might save your life. And for some of us, that's not hyperbole. You see, Lamentations 4 begins and ends with a warning. It begins with language. It's like a flashback scene in a movie. In verse 2, it says, The precious sons of Zion Worth their weight in fine gold, how they are regarded as earthen pots, the work of a potter's hands. This language, this isn't new language here. This is uh, Jeremiah, the author of Lamentations, using flashback language to Jeremiah 18 uh, when he said this, verse 5 and 6, the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord, behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so you are in my hand, O house of Israel. And then in the same breath, one chapter later, chapter 19, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I am bringing such disaster upon this place that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle because the people have forsaken me and profaned this place by making offerings in it to other gods. Here's the warning. Here's the warning of Lamentations 4. Give your hearts to other gods and it's going to end in destruction. Give your heart, offer your heart to another god. Sacrifice your life away to another god. And it's going to end in destruction. That was the warning to Jerusalem through Jeremiah. And it's the warning of Lamentations 4 to us. And if you're sitting there thinking, man, I don't worship other gods, Brandon. 
Like, I don't. You're thinking you're wrong religion, buddy. I, I, I don't. Um, Keller goes on to say, how many young women have driven, are driven into depression and eating disorders by an obsessive concern over their body image. When money and career are raised to cosmic proportions, we perform a kind of child sacrifice, neglecting family and community to achieve and gain wealth and prestige. Money can take on divine attributes and our relationship to it then approximates worship. You see, what it's saying is whatever we trust in, whatever we hope in, whatever it is that we think is going to give us significance and meaning and purpose and an identity and a reason for being, that is what we are bowing down to. That is what our God is. And so no, it's not a statue of an ancient sex God, but, but it might be our career. It might be the marriage that we long to have. It might be the marriage that we don't have. It might be you fill in the blank. Whatever it is that we're bowing down to, we're bowing down because we think that is the thing that's going to give us meaning and purpose and hope and life. It's our God. It's our gods. Our gods, while subtle, while subtle, and they are subtle, they're not obvious. They're not wood carved up into an image. They're not a big stone. They're not, uh, they're not the rocky Balboa at the top of the steps. Boxing glove, I don't know if that's a real thing or not, or just from the movie, but whatever it is, it's not that. Doesn't mean that they're any less dangerous, and they will lead to the same place Jerusalem's and the Israelites' gods did destruction. Now, the rest of the first half of chapter four is a recap of the destruction that was brought. This was our life then. This is our life now. This was, this is our life when we had a good, good life or so we thought. And now this is our life now. And then in verse 11, this is what he does. In verse 11, he throws a dart. It's a bullseye. Throws a dart. Pops the balloon of who is responsible for this. And so let's deep dive with him. Verse 11 The Lord gave full vent to his wrath. He poured out his hot anger. He kindled his fire in Zion. That's the people who ignored his warnings. That consumed its foundations. The kings of the earth did not believe, nor any of the inhabitants of the world, that foe or enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem. That's a a bit of poetic hyperbole, but the point stands, the point he's making is no one would have thought this could have happened. Like no one would have thought, hey, that, like, like that could happen to them. Side note, that, that probably should be a bit of a warning to you. None of us in here think we're the ones who are going to fall, but we'll come back to that, I'm sure. Verse 13. This, all this destruction that's happened in Jerusalem This was for the sins of her prophets and the iniquity of her priests who shed in the midst of her the innocent, the blood of the righteous. So prophets and priests, these were were the people who were meant to teach and to care for and to lead um, the people of Israel toward God, not away from God. Their words, the words of the prophets and the priests, they were meant to bring healing and hope and not destruction. And yet their words now are, are the words that led them into this destruction. And so if I can maybe give a modern day parallel, a modern day illustration, if you will, uh, let me do it this way. Uh, last week, 
Uh, my wife and I, this past week, spring break week, uh, my wife and I were at the beach, beach, right? We were in Galveston. And so uh, we're down there and we're on the beach and there's this family next to us and uh, we're setting up. And all of a sudden I hear the mom look at her, what had to be about a six-year-old son. Uh, and she just started screaming, no, sir, no, sir. And then she grabs him, puts him down, golf cart little seat, and, and me who believes in like communal discipline, I'm thinking, that's right, mom, you go get it. You want me to come hold him down? Like, you can borrow my paddle if you need. I'm, I keep it with me all the time. Uh, I'm just kidding. I don't. I have two of them, and so I don't need to keep one of them with me. Um, that's a joke, too. I'm sorry. I don't know why that happened. Um, but she's screaming at her son, and then I hear these words, and if you think I'm lying, you can ask my wife. You will not speak of my beloved Dallas Cowboys this way. <laughs> now, here's what's funny. The, cow- the Cowboys have been bad for like 25 years, right? It's why I'm a bandwagon fan. Like, you hitch your wagon to one team, and you could ride them into the dirt for a quarter century. Not doing it. Not doing it. I'm going to pick a winner every year and ride them until they lose. Here's what's not funny about it. The damage those words are going to create in his little soul that he's going to experience 20 years from now. And Israel, Israel was this little boy all grown up. And it's not funny anymore. They're experiencing the pain, the destruction they'd been led into by those that were meant to care for and protect them. That's why it says in verse 14, they wandered blind through the streets. They were so defiled with blood that no one, no one was able to touch their garments. Away, unclean, people cried at them. Away, away. Do not touch. So they became fugitives and wanderers. People sat among the nations. They shall stay with us no longer. They become societies untouchables. I felt like the unwanted. I don't belong even in my own land. And it gets worse in verse 16. The Lord himself has scattered them. He will regard them no more. No honor was shown to the priests, no favor to the elders. The Hebrew there in verse 16 literally says, face of the Lord scattered them. It reads as if the Lord looked them in the eye and said, away from me. I can't even look at you. Imagine, imagine, like, put, put yourself in their shoes. Like, like don't. Like, let's take ourselves out of 21st century Western Houston Heights, this room. Like, imagine you're one of those who are living in Jerusalem. Like, your, your city has crumbled. And you've got this letter. Like, Jeremiah has written lamentations to you, and you're reading it, and you're looking for hope. You're looking for something to hold on to, and you read, the face of the Lord has scattered you. Like, imagine how they must have felt. 
You, you, the face, he, he looked at you and he scattered you. Imagine how they must have felt. I can't help but think it had to be something like a child whose mom won't look at him because he has a six-year-old opinion about her favorite sports team. The author knew how they felt. It's why he takes a shift in verse 17 and takes it to a whole nother level. Our eyes failed. Ever watching vainly for help, in our watching we watched for a nation which could not save. They dodged our steps so that we could not walk in our streets. Our end drew near, our days were numbered. For our end had come. Our pursuers, they were swifter than the eagles of the heavens. They chased upon us, chased us on the mountains. They lay in wait for us in the wilderness. These, these verses have some backstory here. The backstory is this that it wasn't just the prophets and the priests who let them down, who failed the people. It was the kings also. And the king, in the midst of, in the middle of Babylon invading, in the middle of Babylon coming in and destroying their city, the king of Israel hitched his wagon, but not to God, to another nation. He hitched his wagon to the nation of Egypt. That's why when it says they watched for a nation they could not save, this is, this is because the king was crying out, Egypt, save us, save us. In the middle of their world falling apart, in the middle of the city being run over, they were crying out, Egypt, save us. The world's crashing and they're not crying to God, they're crying to the nation. And if, if we could have a moment of honesty in this room, it is not that different than us. A world falling apart, a world crashing down, us living with the brokenness of our past, the brokenness of our childhood being brought to bear in our adult lives because we're no longer the six-year-old or the mom yelling at us on the beach anymore. We're adults living in pain that has been brought upon us. And so some of us in here are looking for a spouse. And we're not looking for a spouse so we can have someone to live life with. We're looking for a redeemer to fix what's broken within us. Some of us in here are in the midst of a marriage, living in the pain of a marriage because we lot into a marriage, got into a marriage, not lot into a marriage, but got into a marriage on the hunt for Redeemer to fix what's broken within us. And what's happening, what's happening to us in this room, to some of us in this room, this might not be all of us in this room, but this is certainly some of us in this room, is that we are treating a potential spouse or our spouse the way, the way Israel treated Egypt. I'm not looking to God to fix what's broken within me. I'm looking to another person. And eventually, and eventually, thinking that the spouse will protect us when it doesn't, we end up like Israel in verse 20. The breath of our nostrils. The Lord's anointed, that's the king, was captured in their pits of whom we said, under his shadow we will live among the nations. This is, this is them saying, king, you were supposed to protect us. 
You were supposed to be the one who would protect us. Babylon's invading in. You were supposed to protect us. And you fled and you cried out to Egypt. You, you have brought this upon us. Prophets failed. Priests failed. And now the kings have failed us. And again, if we can imagine what it must be like to be them. To not be Western, uh, generally speaking, affluent Americans living uh, in, in, in Houston, in Heights. If we can imagine what it must be like to be some of the men and women reading chapter 4, hitting verses uh, 11 through 20, and reading this and going, why did this have to happen to us? Why me? I think it would be a fairly legitimate emotion for them to say, why me, if they're not one of the ones they immediately brought this about? Why? Why? Which how they would have felt is what makes verses 21 and 22 completely out of nowhere. I said in the beginning uh, that chapter 4 begins and it ends with a warning. It does. But the warning at the end of chapter 4 is unlike any other warning in the book of Lamentations, and it contains a promise that is almost unlike any other promise in the Bible. Let's go. Verse 21. Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom. Edom, that's a nation that was next to Israel. You who will dwell in the land of Uz, but to you also the cup shall pass and you shall become drunk and strip yourself bare. You see, here's the deal. Edom, they avoided the wrath of Babylon by aligning themselves with Babylon, by making Babylon an ally. And the cup shall pass. That's Bible. For the wrath of God is coming to you. You can't avoid it. You can't run from it. It's coming to you, Edom. You, you can align yourself with Babylon all you want. The wrath of God is coming for you. You, and then verse 22, the punishment of your iniquity, O daughter of Zion, is accomplished. He will keep you in exile no longer. But your iniquity, O daughter of Edom, he will punish. He will uncover your sins. Did you see it? Did you see the second warning? It wasn't to Israel. It was to Edom. To Israel, to Israel, he had to make what had to be, he meant what had to be just this utterly astounding promise. The kind of promise that if you're living in Jerusalem and reading this letter, it simply could not be believed. And if we can read it like an academic, not like an academic, but like a person. Where it says, keep you in exile no longer. The Hebrew there literally, literally, will not exile you again. Here's what made that promise so astounding. The history of Israel reads like a narrative of how to break the first commandment. What's the first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. 
The history of Israel is nothing but generation after generation after generation after generation after generation of the textbook on how to break the first commandment. And here, Jeremiah is writing in, he will no longer exile you and he will not exile you again. He will not. Given their history, how in the world could he have possibly made that promise Here's how, not long after the book of Lamentations, there would be silence, utter silence. God is going to go dark. No more prophets speaking for God. And then one day, God's going to break that silence with a thunder from the heavens. And Jesus is going to come in. And Jesus isn't just going to be the true Israel the one who would perfectly obey the Father and who would not give his heart to another, he's also, he's also the true Edom, the one for whom the cup would not pass, the one who would cry out not to Egypt but to his Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Jesus is why God can make that promise to Israel and to you. To you. Which for a room full of idolaters, of whom I am the chief. That's good news. That's good news. To steal a line from someone I heard this week, that, that should make your heart sore should make it sore. But here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that the warning of Lamentations 4 is not for you. It doesn't mean that the warning to not give your heart to another, to another God is not for you. It's why 1 Corinthians 10 says this, verse 11 and 12. Now these things, speaking of what happened in the Old Testament, immediately Moses, but principle applies to all of the Old Testament, happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Take heed, sojourn. Take heed. Take heed lest you fall. Take heed, don't give your heart to another God. Don't give your heart to the God of love. Listen, love is a good thing. I, God is love, love is a good thing. But don't let the experience of love become the thing that you can't live without. How do you know if it already is? Well, if you're afraid of it or you have to have it, it's probably a pretty good sign. Don't give your heart to the God of love. Don't give your heart to the God of money. Don't let money be the thing that your heart can't live without. Don't let that bank account going from here to here to here to here be the thing that you think gives security and meaning and identity. Don't give your heart to the God of success. Don't give your heart to the God of success. And sojourn, this is the one for us. Like, this is the one. Mary Bell uh, I don't know who she is. I found the quote somewhere. I have no idea, but this is what she said. I, I'm assuming she's trustworthy. She might not be. I don't know. 
So achievement success is the alcohol of our time, that an achievement success addict is no different than any other kind of addict. Whoever she is, I think she's right. This is the one, this is the one. And you know one of the scariest part, sojourn, as one of your pastors, you know one of the scariest part for me, the thing that on Thursday and Friday, going into Lamentations for writing this sermon has just so like seeped into my heart. You know one of the scariest thing for me, for us as your pastors, is that some of you have so given your heart to the gods of love, money, and success that you don't even know I'm talking to you right now. You don't even know that I'm talking to you right now. Love, money, success, they are seductive, seductive gods. And if we get seduced, we wind up like Jerusalem in revels. It's not going to happen tomorrow, but it's going to happen. So what if I do know you're talking to me, Brandon? What if, what if I am fully aware that I am the one that you're talking to? What do I do? What do I do about it? Where do I go? How do I turn? What do I do if I am the one that you're talking to? Where do I go? Hebrews 3 says that the way to, to not fall away from the living God is to exhort one another every day as long as it's called today. This is why we please like, take a deep dive into parishes because we need a new seductive power that is going to woo us away from other gods to the true one and only God of the universe, the one who can redeem you, not the one who's going to lead you into brokenness. And so what's a first step? What's a first step? I'll give you a first step. I'm an engineer. I'm not an engineer. I'm a pastor, but you're in it. You need a first step? I'll give you a first step. Formula doesn't work if we don't have step one, Brandon. Here it is. Maybe this week, maybe this week, maybe this afternoon, maybe tonight, maybe Wednesday, Tuesday, Thursday, when you gather together as parishes, maybe if you do a women's night or a men's night, maybe this, maybe we ditch the questions. Maybe for this week we ditch the questions that we write and send out. Maybe we have a no, I don't know, are there kids in the room? Can I say BS, maybe we have like a no BS conversation. What if we just, for a moment, we stop playing the games and we have an honest conversation about the gods we've already given our heart to and how we desperately need Jesus to come in and be what's more attractive than those gods to us. Take heed, sojourn, lest we fall. Listen to the warning of Lamentations 4. It just might save your life. Let's pray. Father, I know that Lamentations 4 is a weighty and heavy text, and I I know that some of us in this room genuinely believe that it's not for us. Those are the ones I'm most afraid for. Would you, by the grace, the power, and the work of your spirit, would you allow us to take heed before it's too late? Would your son become, would Jesus become the seductive power by that which is more beautiful? 
that we might not give our hearts to gods of love and money and success. That no one may open a book 20 years from now with our story being written on the front page of how it destroyed us. May the front page to the story of our life and our church be that Jesus was the God we gave our heart to and he was the one who controlled and sustained and gave life and meaning and identity. We know that we can't force that. All we can do is take a deep dive with one another, begging you to do it for us and in us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.